I want to share with you, we're going to continue in uh, 1 John, and I just want to do a little bit of a quick review and be a little bit more brief, so I'm not going to go through every single verse. But I, I think it's important, and we talk about this all the time, when you read and study the Bible, you know, context, context, context is so important to understand what it is we're reading, who it's been written to, what is the message, what's being addressed. Sometimes it's very simple. Sometimes we've got to dig a little deeper to understand. And we talked last week about how when John wrote this letter we call First John, and we think he probably wrote it in Ephesus to the Ephesian church and maybe the surrounding churches. We're not totally sure because he doesn't tell us specifically. But we, we know at that time there was false teaching that was infiltrating this new church. It, it was teaching the Gnostics, the Gnosticism, and basically the terms don't matter so much, but one of their teachings was that Jesus really wasn't God in the flesh. Matter of fact, they actually believed that he was kind of like a phantom or a ghost. He really didn't have a physical body. And you can see all the implications of that belief as you go down towards the cross and the crucifixion, the, the shedding of blood, all of that. Then there was another part of their teaching that believed and taught that Jesus, while he was the Son of God, he was born a man. When the Holy Spirit came on him at baptism, he, he had then the Holy Spirit. And then before he was crucified, the Spirit left him. So he really wasn't God in the flesh when he got crucified on a cross. And again, you can, you can start to see the dangers, I hope, of that kind of theology. And basically what they, the Gnostics in particular were doing was trying to create their own way to the Father, ignoring what we would call the Bible and the gospel message. Same thing's happening today. We don't call it Gnosticism, but it is a form of Gnostics, a form of Gnosticism. Different people, different faith, different groups, ignoring what the Bible says so clearly, that there is only one way to the Father, and through that's through Jesus Christ, His Son. It's the only way, through His death, burial, and resurrection. Only way. Instead, we come up with all these philosophical, intelligent, or at least they think it's intelligent-sounding theories. New ways to get there. We call it, we give them new labels, we, we identify them as universalism, and on and on and on, and... Really, they're just doing the same old thing that the enemy was trying to do 2,000 years ago. And then there was another group of people that were doing some false teaching, and, and, and we've called it, or some of the theologians have labeled it, perfectionism. Perfectionism, that we're, we're perfect. We become perfect. And they did this by separating spirit and matter, okay? Spirit and matter, they're not the same. Spirit is good. Matter is evil. So in other words, my spirit is perfect and nothing can damage it. My physical body is matter and it's just evil as all get out, but it doesn't matter because it doesn't affect my spirit. So I can do anything I want, live any way I want, and my spirit is still perfect. What a great theology. Give in to the flesh all you'd like. And this is just some of what John was trying to address when he started out in the first part of the chapter of the, chapter 1, by saying, you know, I was an eyewitness. I was there. He was, he was flesh and bone. I saw him eat. I've touched him. It, he's the real deal. And he's coming against that teaching, that, that Gnosticism. And then he's spending the rest of the letter, and it kind of culminates in, in, the, in chapter 5, verse 13, where he says, I am telling you all these things that you may know you have eternal life. 
that you may know with certainty. And it's amazing how many times in these five chapters he says, I'm writing this because. I'm writing this to tell you. I'm writing this because. He's, and remember what he's doing. He's attacking this false teaching and these false teachers. And we need to understand it kind of in that context that that's what he's doing. The title of the message this morning is simply Love the World Versus Love for God. Wouldn't seem to be much of a contest, would it? Love for the world usually wins. Love for God. And John is going to be addressing that real clearly with the recipients of this letter. So I'm going to read a few verses, and then we're going to talk about them and, and quickly try to get down to verses 15 through 17. In verses, verse 3 of chapter 2, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his, keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. And the one who says he abides in him ought to himself walk in the same manner as he walked. Now, if you read that without any context, you might think, gee, we're supposed to be perfect. Positionally, I am perfect. As I stand before Christ, as we sang this morning, God sees the righteousness of Jesus. He doesn't see me. But just a few verses before that, John has made clear, you're going to sin. And God knows that. But when you do, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ the Son, who's there to plead your case before the Father. No matter, no matter what sin it is, no matter what the enemy accuses you of, when you stand before the Father, he doesn't see Mike and my sin and all the garbage in my life. What he sees is Jesus Christ's blood, it's the sacrifice that Jesus made. It's that cloak of righteousness. It's such a wonderful picture. I am totally in the garment of the righteousness of Jesus Christ when I stand before God. So we know that he's not talking about being perfect. He's not talking about being perfect here. But what he's saying to us is if we know the one true God. In other words, if, if we know him, we understand him, we perceive him. We understand who he is. And again, he's confronting their false teaching. He says if that's the case, it requires us to have an attitude and an effort towards obedience. Not that I'll be perfect, but my attitude and my heart is one towards obedience. So that when I do mess up, I'm quick to confess it and get back in relationship with him. I don't have to go and beg to be forgiven so my salvation's assured. That's not it at all. It's just that my relationship with him is being strained when there's sin that I haven't confessed. So he's saying when you know him, we should have this attitude. It should be different. We become different. We're not totally what we will be, but we're not what we were. We now have the Holy Spirit living in us. We now have the ability to resist those sins where before we were powerless to sin. But it's all changed. And he's trying to assure them that, that it's a real thing in your life, and because it's real, if you really know him, if you're truly born again, you and I won't live lives with disregard to sin. See how clearly he's attacking that Gnostic belief that my spirit and my flesh are separate and my flesh can do anything it wants? There's no way of a truly born-again person having that attitude. It really should cause us to question, do they really know Jesus as their Lord and Savior or not? We need to continually ask ourselves. We're not judging hearts. We're looking at fruit. But Paul, John is saying clearly here, 
there shouldn't be a disregard towards sin. It should bother us. Our salvation's not at risk, but our intimacy with him. Why should we not disregard sin? Because we love God so much. And that's really what his emphasis is throughout this, this whole book, this whole letter that he's writing. The love of God transforms us, transforms the way we think. It transforms our attitudes. It transforms our behaviors. It transforms everything when we love God. And that's going to be his emphasis as he goes through this and is instructing them. In verse 5, he reaffirms and he says, this is how you know that you know him. This is how you know that you are in him. Do you have a desire to please him? Do you have a desire to, to live in obedience to his word? Notice it's not saying you're living perfectly because you can't. But is it your heart's desire? And you won't use it as an excuse that you can't live perfectly because my heart's desire really is to please him. If we start using that and take license with that liberty, we're in trouble. Our hearts should be changed. He says, those who know God must love their brother. Let me read now. I'm going to start in verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment to you. Verse 7 and 8 can be a little confusing when you read it. He says, I'm writing to you. I'm not writing to you a new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and doesn't know where he is going because the darkness has blinded him. The light of the world is Jesus Christ. And he's saying, you know, we can get all hung up on those words, commandments, but we need to understand in the New Testament when the disciples came and said, you know, which commandments? Which ones? He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, all your soul and all your strength. And the second is like it. Love your brother as yourself. All the other commandments are in there. You know, go ahead and write down the Ten Commandments if you want to. They're good things. But if you love God and you love others, you won't commit any of those. That's what it says. That's it. We're not living under the bondage of the law anymore. We're living in this relationship with a loving Heavenly Father, a loving God. That's who we're living in relationship with. He loves us as children. You know that song, Good, Good Father, it's amazing. It's the number one listened to song in the United States right now in Christian circles and churches. And it's such a simple song, isn't it? Wow, you'd think, golly, you must have really worked for hours to write that. There's, a, there's a, a download of such a basic spiritual truth that when we get it, it changes our lives. He is a good, good father. And he loves me. That's who I am. I'm his child. He loves me. It changes everything. Changes everything. That's why it's resonating in churches across this nation, around the world. We're singing a simple truth. That's who he is and who we are. He's a good God. He loves his children. That's who we are, his children. 
He's adopted us. It's a legal transaction that's done. It's been completed. And he's telling us, if we love Jesus, if we love the Father, we love our brothers. If you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, God's not in you. Now, we need to understand this word love. When you read verse, well, we'll get into that later. This kind of love doesn't mean you have the warm fuzzies for everybody that's a Christian. Matter of fact, you ever notice that sometimes you don't even really like them all that much? That's not what he's talking about. You know, that, that, that emotional feeling. You're not all supposed to have that feeling, whatever that feeling thing is. But what he's saying is there is a love for a brother in Christ that's an attitude of goodwill towards them, wanting nothing but the best for them and having compassion to minister to them whenever you can. That's the kind of love for a brother that should be part of us because if we have the love of God in us, that same love is what we will demonstrate to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the heart of God. He wants nothing but the best for us. That's his goal. That's his plan. That's our destiny in him. He's going to show compassion and mercy and grace. And that's what it's saying there. Not that we're going to have this warm feeling, but we need to act properly towards them out of a right attitude of our heart. So there's a little bit of a difference there. We can get confused because that command, if we apply it to a natural love, that, that feeling, we would probably fail quite miserably. But when we have a brother and sister in Christ, we're to love them like Christ does, wishing them nothing but well and doing all that we can to help them in their walk with the Lord to fulfill their destiny. And again, he's addressing an issue that seemed to be going on in that area is where they weren't loving one another. There was all kinds of fighting, all kinds of bickering. There were those who were trying to be the super spiritual ones and trying to tell everybody else you're not quite there yet. If you hang around me, you might get it. All that nonsense was taking place, and he's addressing that. In verses 12 through 14, this is an example of Scripture. I believe that when you read it, you can almost make probably three different applications, and I think all of them might have at least an element of possibility of being the right interpretation. So I tell you that to let you know that I'm going to share what mine is, and you all have to believe it. <laughs> Not true. But I'm going to read these verses, and there's so much in there, but I want you to not so much pay attention to the who's, but what, what John is saying to each one of the who's. He says, I'm writing to you. Here it is. Catch it, he's saying. Pay attention. This is why I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. There's that eternal aspect of him. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I have written to you, children, because you know the Father. I have written to you, fathers, because you know him who has been from the beginning. I have written to you, young men, because you are just strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Now, when we look at that and read that, we could look at that in father and young men and children as a chronological age thing. And that is a possibility. I, I don't think in the context it works very well, but it's a possibility. We also could look at it in terms of, of uh, <coughs> the spiritual maturity of the people he's writing to. You know, some of you uh, little children listen to me, some of you young men over here, and then there's the fathers over here. And once again, it's a possibility, certainly. 
but I don't think it's the clearest. You need to decide for yourselves. A third way of looking at it is, is that each term refers to all of them and the stages they went through in their maturity in their walk with the Lord. You know, he says, you've been forgiven. You've known him. You've had fellowship with him. And you've had spiritual victories through him. The word of God abides in you and you're walking. And it's like a reminder, again, what's his ultimate purpose? Your salvation is here. It's secure. You don't need to question that. And he's reminding them again. I believe he's just saying, you've been forgiven. You know that. If you're forgiven, you're a child of God. You've walked with him. You know him. You've had fellowship with him. You're a child of God. You have the word in you and you've faced some serious battles, spiritual battles, and you've overcome and you've won those spiritual battles. You're a child of God, walking with the authority that you have as a child of God. I personally think that interpretation of those scriptures works best in the context of the rest of the book and the chapter that we're looking at. So God, John is continually reassuring them of their salvation. And now he kind of switches gears and he warns them about the world. And this is what I want to focus on for a few minutes. I'm going to read verse 15. Do not love the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. The world. Don't love the world. You know, in verse 15, in my translation, the word love is in there three different times. But there's two different words. The love that he's referring to, don't love the world, and anyone loves the world, those two is one Greek word, and the love of the Father is another Greek word. And they're very, very close in the Greek, and they can almost sometimes be used interchangeably, but there's a significant difference. When we look at the love of the world, it's talking about something, that there's something in us that we're not willing to abandon it. We're not willing to go without it. It's a prize above all the other things that are in our life. It's got a hold of us. You're, you're allowing that. You're loving the world. And the world itself, what does that mean? Again, it, it could mean at least three things. One, the world could mean all of creation that's around us. I think it's obvious it's not that that he's referring to. All of creation, the beauty of his creation. It reveals God to us. So that's not the love of the world that he's talking about there. And the world could be all of mankind. The world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He loved humanity. He loved his creation. I don't believe that's what he's talking about. And the third would be the world system that we live in. This system in our world that is still under the influence of Satan. You know... <coughs> I think one of the most derogatory things you can say to a Christian is, boy, you're worldly. Boy, you're worldly. That's the last thing I want to be is worldly Christian. A worldly Christian, one who is so in love with the systems of this world that are evil. There's lots of things in that system in and of themselves that aren't necessarily an evil thing, but they are all part of this system out there that is opposed to God not bringing glory and honor to God. Don't love the world. The cosmos is the Greek word there, and it's an attitude and a system of values that disregards or God or is just blatantly against God. Think about everything in our world that's out there 
in the secular world. We call it secular. The world that's out there. Good things that are being just overtaken by the systems of this world. I mean, think of the Internet. What an amazing tool. What an amazing gift of God. And look how the world is corrupting it and polluting it and using it in so many destructive ways. Television. God, I like watching a good football game. They just got to remove all those sexual commercials. And all of them that are encouraging me to drink like crazy and borrow money and go into debt up to here. All part of the systems of the world. And he's saying, don't love the world. Don't let yourself get the hooks of the world into you so that you're you're not willing to give it up. Now, if I was a legalist, I'd love to challenge us, but being this is one of my issues, I'm not going to. <laughs> Nobody watch TV for the next six months. Everybody give away your cell phones and your computer for the next six hours. And then we'll have a prayer service and heal all of you that have a nervous breakdown. Think about how the world has got us. And again, like I say, good tools. But it's the system of the world that gets its hooks in us. And that's what John is saying way back then, 2,000 years ago. Don't get trapped. Don't love the world. Love the Father. And if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. You can't love them both equally. One of them becomes God the worldly things, or the Father who loves you. And that's what he's saying to them 2,000 years ago. Why not love the world? Why? Because its values are in total opposition to God. We want to live and be under the blessings of God. We want to see God move in powerful ways to use us as a body and each one of us as individuals to advance the kingdom of God, to lead people to Christ. If the world has got its tentacles in us, it's not going to work like he intends for it to work. Don't let it. And then in verse 16, he gives us three, three really powerful descriptions of what John says is the world and the pressure the world exerts on us. Look at that verse, 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but they are all from the world. The lust of the flesh. This is a physical pressure, this lust of the flesh. My flesh wants something. This is kind of getting getting down to the basics, animal instincts in us. The lust of the flesh. I want it, therefore I will get it. I will take it. I will will devour it. It's really nothing but the sensual desires. And I don't just mean sexual. I mean this is anything that comes after those base desires in us. The lust of the eyes. This is kind of more of a mental pressure on us. It's kind of where the vanities of the world, we see it. It's beautiful. We want it. We see it. It looks pleasurable. We want it. We see it and we think, oh, that will make life easier. We want it. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and then the pride of life. This is a spiritual attack from the world. It's a spiritual desire. It's, it's anything that tends to promote pride and to make us look good and think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Oh, golly, if I just do this, 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 and the world, they're going to think I am the greatest there ever was. If I only had this, this, and the other thing. It's keeping up with the Joneses on steroids. Pride of life. 
And look, look at the, the, the enemy has used that, those three things, from the garden. Think about when Eve was tempted. Look at that fruit. It is good for food. It's good for food. You eat it. It'll satisfy our appetite, the basic desire of eating, consuming, feeding my body. And then he says, it's a delight to your eyes, and it's desirable to make you wise. It's a delight to my eyes. It'll make me very wise. It's a vanity thing. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil, a pride, lust of the eyes, lust of the flesh, pride of life. I mean, it worked so well with human beings, the devil tried it on Jesus. Remember when he took him out to the desert, fasting for 40 days, comes to him when he's really hungry, and what's the first thing he says? Turn those stones into bread. That basic thing, we need food, you're hungry, there it is. Go ahead, it's okay. When that didn't work, he comes at him and says, all the kingdoms of the world are yours. All you got to do is bow down to me. All these things, the vanities of the world, it's all yours. And that didn't work. He says, he he took him to Jerusalem at the top of the temple. He says, just jump off the temple and don't worry about a thing. You know, there will be a whole bunch of people at the temple. There always is. You just get up here. Now let's jump and watch the angels catch you. Can you imagine how impressed they're going to be? They're all going to know you're the son of God. Pride of life. You know what the only difference between the temptations of Eve and the temptations of Jesus were? Obedience. Jesus loved the Father and he knew the Word. Eve succumbed to the temptations of the world, the the system that was being established in the world at that time. And verse 17, he follows that up with this, Motivation. All those things that you're latching on to, they're passing away. They're temporary. They're going to do you no good. He says it this way, and it sounds way more spiritual when he says it. And the world is passing away, and also it's lust, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. You know, it's like you're going to undergo this test. It's going to be a test as long as you're on planet Earth. And I'll guarantee you, here's the outcome. I'm going to give you the answer key. No matter how much the world tests you, it's passing away. It's all going to burn. It's going to be worthless and useless. But over here, if you abide in me, if you love me, if you're obedient to me, eternal life is yours. We've got the answer key given to us for this test that we're going to face all of our life. And so many fail the test. The world is on its way out. And it was on its way out nearly 2,000 years ago when John wrote this letter. And we're getting closer every day to the culmination of that. And what he's saying is when you attach your life to the world, you've attached it to something that's passing away. We, we sell ourselves out. The world, we, people sell themselves out for such a cheap price to something that's passing away, something that is so temporal. There's no permanent satisfaction. Think about all those things that are out there that people latch on to. Things. I don't care how impressive those things are that we attach to. They're going to pass away. They're going to burn. They're going to rot. They're going to decay. Popularity is so fleeting. One day you can be on top of the world. 
Next day you're a goat. It happens so quickly. The buzz that everybody's seeking from drugs and alcohol and sexual immorality, that buzz is gone that quick. And you have to feed it again and again and again. Infatuations die, die out real quickly. And pleasures are so short-lived. And yet those are the things that, that the devil, that Satan uses in trapping us in this world system that's opposed to God. And he finishes that verse with, he that does the God, will of God will live forever or have eternal life. You know, eternal life. Junk that goes away quickly or eternal life in the presence of God. It would seem like a pretty easy choice. But we know how enticing and how, how much of a deceiver and a liar the enemy is. I want to read a paraphrase of verses 16 and 17. This is actually from the, the Holman New Testament commentary. It's, a, it's a, just a paraphrase of those two verses. It says this, Do not embrace the world's ways or goods. When you do, it squeezes out your love for God. When you live forgetting your own way and forgetting everything you want and for looking good compared to others, you're not living for God but for the world. This is really foolish because it suffocates your relationship with God and in the end, it will go up in smoke anyway. Great paraphrase. So what's the best way to not love the world? And here's where Satan gets us in another trap. You know, we can make a list of do's and don'ts and say, there, if I just do all those things and I just don't do all those things, I'm in. I won't love the world. That's not the way to do it. The lists of do's and don'ts do not work. All you got to do is look at the law of the Old Testament. All it did is prove you couldn't do it. But so many of us fall into that trap, and it's a worldly way of thinking. You just try harder. You just do better. If you're good enough, maybe you will. It's all lies. The best way, the only way, to not love the world. Write this down. This is profound. Love God more fully. That's it. Love God more fully. Do everything you can to make it easier for you to love God. Spend more time with Him. You'll love Him more. Read the Word. You'll love Him more. Meditate on who He is. You'll love Him more. Obey Him and, and realize the blessings that go with obedience. And you'll love Him more. We make it this thing where we're going to try to perform. It won't work. As we truly love God more and more, the love of God changes us completely. When we love God, our hearts begin to be changed. When we love God, our desires become His desires. We become who we worship. We become like the one we love. And when we do this, our focus becomes one of eternal things instead of all those temporary things. Really, it, it sounds so simple. And really, it is because it is pretty effortless. All I need to do is love him as fully as I can. And you know what? That is one of those things that the Holy Spirit 
was more than happy to help us do. When our heart's there, pray, Lord, help me understand your word better by your Holy Spirit. He'll do that. Lord, show me those things in my life that are, are the world sneaking in. He'll show you those things. Lord, reveal to me those things that I need to put aside completely. He'll reveal those things. He wants a church and people that will love him fully. And you know what? When that happens, everything else takes care of itself. Isn't that neat? Let's close in prayer. Praise you, Lord. Father, so many of us, as you know, better than we. You know us better than we know ourselves. Because of things in our life and in our past, we don't know how to receive the kind of love that you are. We can't comprehend love that comes so freely. No strings attached. Love that we don't have to to perform to earn it. God, I pray that you would remove those barriers in our lives and in our minds that prevent us from receiving the love of Christ that transforms us, that changes us. God, that we may know your love in in a more real, personal way than we've ever known it before. God, that that love, your love in us would be so filling us that it would overflow to those around us. And in that love, we would find that place of peace and contentment, that peace of joy, that peace of hope, that place of hope, knowing our Heavenly Father's love. God, I thank you that even as we see John revealing these things in his letter, we realize that Satan and his schemes have been around forever. That he's nothing but a liar and a deceiver. And you are the truth and you have given us the spirit of truth. So Lord, I pray that as individuals and as your church, we will embrace the truth and reject the compromise. That we would embrace the truth and discern the philosophies of the worldly system that are around us. God, give us grace. Give us the grace to turn away from those things that are opposed to who you are and your plans and purposes for our life. God, I thank you that each one of us here has a destiny in Jesus to accomplish mighty things for your kingdom. Lord, I pray that as we go our separate ways today, we go sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leading. We pray for those divine appointments and those opportunities, even as Lori shared, that that make it easy, that we would walk with such joy and such peace and such hope that people would want to know where it comes from, that we might tell them about you. God, we see evil in the world. Pray, God, that that spirit of fear that is trying to permeate the entire globe, Father, would, would not find a place to stay or to stick in your children. God, we pray for what's going on over in Europe, even even now, in France and Paris, Lord. We pray, God, for your mercy on those people. We pray for wisdom for our leaders. But God, we come back to that foundation in knowing that you are our source and your control. And we pray that whatever we do today and every day brings glory and honor to you In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.